The Tom Woods Show, episode 1406. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, if you're like me, when you criticize the Federal Reserve, you get all these lackey-style responses. Why the Fed has made the economy more stable. You don't want to go back to the 19th century, do you? All kinds of arguments like that. Well, you can blow those and others out of the water with my free ebook, Our Enemy, the Fed. Grab it at OurEnemyTheFed.com. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here. I spoke, as you may know, at the Libertarian Party of Florida's state convention earlier this month as the keynote speaker, and I'm going to play my talk for you right now as today's episode. Now, there was an audio problem, apparently. There was some cable that they had a very, very big professional setup. Some cable wasn't properly plugged in. So apparently for the early portion of my talk, I was being picked up directly by the camera, which is not ideal at all. So through the miracles of my audio folks, um, particularly Chris Williams here, we've made it sound okay. But it's not perfect. It should be perfect, but it's not. But wow, I mean, we really did everything you could do to it to make it more listenable for you. So just so you know, that's what's going on. But um, I don't think you'll have any real problems. There's other stuff from the convention I might want to also use as episodes because I was really impressed with, uh, we did a panel together Jeff Deist, Walter Block, and I that I thought was really great. So I may pull more out of this box of goodies in the coming weeks. Make sure, by the way, that you don't skip tomorrow's episode, 1407, because the heroic and notorious medievalist at the University of Chicago, Rachel Fulton Brown, comes back to the show, and you never, ever want to miss something like that. She is absolute dynamite. Anyway, here we go. I hope you enjoy my talk. What I'm going to talk about today is kind of foundational stuff. I'm going to take my, take my little watch off. I'm going to monitor myself with this very watch. There we go. Oh, good. What a handsome timepiece that is. What I, I want to start off with this observation. It's one that we all share. As libertarians, we're, it's not like we're asking people to believe bizarre, implausible propositions. We're basically asking simply to reflect on moral intuitions that we pretty much all share. We're asking them to take seriously those things they learned when they were children about not hitting people, about keep your hands to yourself, don't steal things from people. We just want to be ultra consistent in how we apply that. We don't believe that there's some separate realm called politics in which these beliefs suddenly no longer hold. So as I say, what we're doing is Taking ideas that if you pin people down, they have to admit they believe, and we're just trying to show if they're right for us as individuals, then they're right when we act in groups. And they even apply to a group called the state. So, for instance, when you read Frederick Bastiat, his classic little work, The Law, he uses that glorious expression, legal plunder. He said, we all know if I go over to your house and I take things that this is plunder and they'll put me in jail. But if a group of people decide that the the authorities should go over and confiscate your stuff, that's all right, because that's legal plunder. And libertarians say, to that. If it's plunder in the first case, then it's plunder in the second. And yet, here we are simply giving voice to moral ideas that we were all taught as kids. And yet we're so darn unpopular. Why is that? Doesn't make sense, right? We should be the most popular people in the world. 
right? Thank you for helping to educate me on how to apply these moral ideas in daily life. We don't really get that reception all the time. Now, people may like one idea of ours or a couple of ideas, but the package is a tough sell. So the other day, and it's going to be airing on Monday, I interviewed a fellow who's a philosophy professor at the University of Maryland. And he has, I've never heard of this guy, Dan Mahler. And he's written a fantastic new book on libertarianism. It's called Governing Least, subtitle, A New England Libertarianism. And he begins his book with a hypothetical speech delivered at a, a town meeting. And he asks, could you bring yourself to deliver this speech? So let me read it to you. And you'll see that this, again, is an attempt to take our basic moral intuitions and show how we ought to apply them to politics. So imagine yourself giving this speech. My dear assembled citizens, I know much, most of us are strangers, but of late I have fallen on hard times through no fault of my own, by sheer bad luck. My savings are low and I don't have friends or family to help. Now, as you know, I've previously asked for help from you as private citizens as a matter of charity, but unfortunately that hasn't been sufficient. Thus, I'm here now to insist that you, yes, you, Emma, and you, John, owe me assistance as a matter of justice. It is a deep violation if you don't work additional hours, take fewer vacations if need be, live in a smaller house, or send your kids to a worse school in order to help me. Failing to do so is no less an injustice than failing to pay your debts. Moreover, calling this an injustice means that it's not enough that you comply with your obligations by working on my behalf. No, I insist that you help me to force your fellow citizens to assist me. It doesn't matter if these others say to you that they need the money for their own purposes, that they prefer worthier causes, or if they're just hard-hearted and don't care. To the extent that you care about justice, you must help me to force these others to assist me, whether they wish to or not, since that is what is owed me in light of my recent bad luck. Anybody have the stones to give a speech like that at a town hall meeting? And of course, nobody would, and that's his point. Why wouldn't you give that speech? You'd be mortified. And why would you be? Because it violates some kind of thing you're pretty sure you were taught when you were a kid. Hmm. So if it's so blindingly obvious that you shouldn't steal, and you shouldn't threaten to put people in cages. Why isn't everybody a libertarian? So I've got a few, now Professor Mahler has an answer for that in episode 1399 of the Tom Woods Show, which you can listen to on Monday. But, so that's, but I have a few answers of my own. So the first one is partly it's human nature. Uh, Albert J. Nock put it very succinctly when he said that people prefer to achieve their ends with the least possible exertion. And so if they find out that there is something called the state that can help them reach their ends more easily by plundering their fellow citizens, well, maybe what old mom and dad taught them as kids, uh, that doesn't seem quite as compelling as the state can send me a check with my name on it. So there is the problem of moral corruption. Now, I'm not suggesting that everybody who's not a libertarian is morally corrupt. No, they could also be ignorant. But that, that don't mean that they're all corrupt or ignorant. There are their third, fourth, fifth option. But these are two problems that we have to contend with. There is, number one, moral corruption. We see that in business, where a businessman, oh, he's all for the free market. But in his particular case, well, you can't apply the free market to 
the energy sector. Everybody knows that. You can't apply it to health. And there's always some exception. That's the moral corruption. But then there's also the fact that not necessarily through anyone's particular fault, there is a lot of ignorance. I mean, there are people who believe utterly preposterous things because they pretty sure they think they read them in a third grade textbook. We are up against an educational establishment that doesn't, let's say, agree with the entire libertarian party platform. <laughs> so there is this factor that equally simple ideas, and that is to say equally easily grasped, are conveyed to children on a daily basis. And moreover, there are ideas that are peddled to adults that are meant to get them to question these basic intuitions that we talk about. Don't steal and therefore, this group of people also can't steal. Well, the adult version, the adult answer to that is, well, there's a social contract that we all sign that says that it's all right for this particular group to steal because you more or less consented to having that group steal. Now, I've already handled that on the old Tom Woods show. I've already handled that one. But we've all heard that sort of argument. So they're trying to come up with rationalizations that will help people be able to parry the libertarian, the moral libertarian objection. So uh, let me think of a kind of argument that somebody might make that makes it seem like, okay, maybe the libertarians might have something to say morally, but on a practical level. I mean, let's be practical. We can't be moral philosophers. We've got to do what works. And so a lot of times you'll hear things like uh, the Scandinavian countries have wonderful societies and they're not libertarians. And we would do well to obey and to, to follow what they do. Well... That sounds pretty convincing. Yeah, I know the libertarians think we shouldn't steal, but stealing works out so well for the Swedes. You know, we should do it. Now, the beauty of this is there actually are some good answers to that. And you've probably heard some of them that actually the Scandinavian countries do pretty well on these indexes of economic freedom. That apart from the government spending, they have fairly free economies when it comes to government regulation and restrictions on trade and monetary policy and the rule of law and factors of this kind. That is certainly a good answer. But there's so much more. For instance, you'll hear things like, well, they have a longer life expectancy over there, and that goes to show that we should be like them. But you know what's funny? They always leave out. You know, they'll, they'll say, they're not always lying. They're lying sometimes by omission. Because it is true that Denmark, uh, in Denmark, they live a year and a half longer than we do. But it turns out that before they had the big welfare state, they lived two and a half years longer than we did. Okay? So it's actually, the gap has closed since they, so you, you wouldn't know that because nobody tells you that. But the trend is in exactly the opposite direction of what you would think based on what you're hearing. In 1960, Denmark had lower taxes than the U.S. had. They had a very limited government. And there, the gap in the life expectancy was greater at that time. And that was true of all the Nordic countries. The gap in the life expectancy was larger before they had the welfare state. Well, that's an interesting fact. You'd think somebody would tell us. You have to dig this up yourself because they, they ain't going out of their way to, to tell you. Now, this doesn't prove anything, but you better believe if these situations were reversed, we'd never hear the end of it. Denmark has the highest tax rate of these countries, and they have the lowest lifespan. Whereas Iceland, which is the one of these countries that never really went down the full social democracy road, has the highest lifespan. Now, that doesn't in and of itself prove anything, but if it were reversed, we'd never hear the end of it. Instead, we hear silence. 
How about the case of Nordic populations who have moved to the United States? Now, most of those were poor people. A lot of times people will say, oh, this is a self-selection bias where the rich and successful are the ones who migrate, so they're going to do very well. Not in the case of the Nordic peoples. So, for example, in Sweden, it was overwhelmingly poor people who migrated from Sweden to the United States, people who didn't own anything, who didn't have any land. And so you'd think they're probably going to be less successful than the other Swedes who stayed in Sweden. But it turns out that Nordic Americans have a 50% higher level of prosperity than do their friends who stayed back in Scandinavia. Uh, likewise, their unemployment level over here is about half what it is at home. Their high school dropout rate is much lower here. And the poverty levels of Nordic Americans are much, much lower in the United States than they are back in the home countries. This is true for Swedes, Finns, Danes, and Norwegians. Hmm. Well, this puts rather a different spin on things, doesn't it, if we know all these facts? Or how about this? The tax burden is somewhat relevant here. In Sweden, what happens is a lot of the taxes are hidden so that people don't really realize they're paying them. That's just the way the state likes it, of course. So a recent survey was done to ask Swedes, what do you think for a normal person, the kind of tax a normal person would, would pay, how high is your effective tax rate in Sweden? And the average answer was a below 30%, but the correct answer is 52%. 52%. Well, yeah, if I were paying 52%, I would hope I'd get a few, you know, doses of medicine or something out of it. You know, I'm sure they can produce something with all that money. It would be shocking if they couldn't. But the point is 52% tax rate for everybody. So what's happening a lot is it's not so redistributive in these countries where it's from the rich to the poor. It's very often the poor and the middle class redistributing to back to themselves is what's going on. Well, any dope can do that. This isn't some magic formula they, they've happened upon. Or how about, let's take another country that's thrown at us. They something now that this one, not as much, but you know, there are some commies who will tell you that in Cuba, under Castro, everything turned around, right? Everybody could read. And by the way, literacy figures, what interests me is, what are they allowed to read? <laughs> if all you can read is communist propaganda, then you want the country to be literate, of course. So that, I'm a little skeptical of. But how about health, right? We've all heard this, right? But especially in Florida, there are a lot of people uh, who used to live in Cuba, who know the real truth and try to tell the real truth. But we get told that, oh, my goodness, there's wonderful free health care for everybody. And it's a fantastic system. All right. So I asked my old friend, Umberto Fontova, who's written some great books about Cuba. His family fled there. So he has, you know, rather a bias. But, you know, statistics have a well-known libertarian bias, as it turns out. And so what he found was this. He says, well, look, in 1958, when Castro took over, Cuba had 88 percent literacy already. Okay, they already Cuba was already 13th from the bottom. Uh, in well, this is a ranking where you want to be low in terms of infant mortality. They had the 13th lowest infant mortality in the world in 1958 already. So then later on, you hear, oh, Cuba's doing great with infant mortality. You know, 44th uh, lowest in the in the world, but it was 13. That's the point. They don't tell you that it was 13 before the commies. And then even then, he says, and even then, they're, they're fudging the numbers. So it's, it's even worse than 44. So what he points out is before you had, see, I think it was Johann Norberg who, who told me this joke. You probably heard this, but 
what's the best way to get a small fortune? Start with a big fortune and then blow a lot of it. <laughs> and that's the story of Sweden, and that's the story of Cuba, because you hear all these great stories about what's going on in Cuba. It's because they started off really well. So when you blow a lot of it, it still looks sort of okay, but you're just piggybacking on what they already had. So Umberto said, Cuba had a higher standard of living in 1958 than much of Europe. They owned as many cars per capita as the Italians. The Italians like their cars. In 1958, Cuba had almost double Spain's per capita income. It had a higher per capita income than Austria, Japan, had lower infant mortality than France, Germany, and Belgium. So, yeah, it was already doing well. But then, what about all the wonderful uh, medical stories we hear? Well, it turns out these are not altogether true. And we've got pretty good evidence of it. Most of the doctors, or the men and women who became doctors, who had the misfortune of being born in Cuba, says uh, Umberto, in the 50s and 60s, got their medical degrees under Castro. When they came to the United States, they couldn't, they had to be licensed in the U.S., and they couldn't pass the exam. They could barely pass the one to make them nurses. These were the doctors that, that uh, everybody was bragging about. Well, you remember Michael Moore came out with that movie, Sicko, about health care. And he showed the Cuban system to be, well, like paradise on earth, right? Because they let him look at the Potemkin Village Hospital, and it just seemed wonderful. So there were a group of Cuban dissidents who surreptitiously took actual footage of the real hospitals, not the ones the communist apparatchiks went to, but the one that the average Joe six-pack Cuban went to. And Umberto points out, not that the average Cuban could afford a six-pack, but you understand my term. He says, so they went and they snuck in cameras. They got this footage showing what the real hospitals were like. Beds without mattresses and, and infested with fleas and whatever, all horrible. And they got this footage out and they brought it to ABC News because they knew John Stossel was there. So they figured John Stossel's going to have some pull with the higher-ups at ABC. Well, John Stossel had his pull, but, you know, ABC higher-ups are ABC higher-ups. And they were ready to run it. And Umberto says that what wound up happening was the Cuban government got wind of this and said to ABC, we may have to rethink your uh, Havana Bureau desk here if you were to run that. And ABC came and did not run that footage. And so the dissidents came back to Umberto and said, this is ridiculous. I mean, we risked everything to get this footage and now they're not going to run it. And Umberto said, all right, let me think. Let's try. So they called Fox News. Now, as you know, I've had many negative things to say about Fox News in the past, but you've got to give credit where it's due because it's, it's not fair otherwise. If Fox News didn't have a Havana Bureau that they, had to, that they could be intimidated into you know, doing the, the will of the regime. And so they ran the footage and I put it up on my website. If you're interested in seeing the footage of the actual Cuban hospitals, I put it up at tomwoods.com slash Cuba. I just did that this afternoon. There are two videos up there at tomwoods.com slash Cuba if you're interested in that. So, th so this is the, the real story, not the, the cartoon version. But when you hear the cartoon version, I can understand why somebody would say, yeah, you libertarians, you spin some really nice moral tales. And there's a part of me that appreciates that. But I got to live in the real world. And the data that I see in the real world tells me that a big state gives us good outcomes. So that's why I got to go after that. It actually, it doesn't. It actually doesn't. You're not hearing the whole story about those things. Or we could talk about, obviously, the conquest of poverty is a tremendous story. It is the, it is the greatest story of the past 50 years. It is the greatest story probably in all of world economic history. 
the lifting of more people out of poverty than ever before, to the point where we're getting to the point where absolute poverty is almost conquered. So there was a, I mentioned this in a talk I gave last year, there was a survey done probably two or three years ago of around the world, uh, including in the United States, where survey respondents were asked, which of the following do you believe is true of what's happened over the world over the past 20 or 30 years with regard to poverty? Do you believe that poverty has doubled, stayed roughly the same, or been cut pretty much in half? Now, the correct answer has been cut pretty much in half. 95% of Americans got that question wrong. They think poverty has either stagnated or doubled when the greatest phenomenon in modern economic history, or perhaps in all of economic history, has just occurred right under their noses, and they don't even know about it. Yeah, so it is a little tricky for us as libertarians, isn't it? If that knowledge were out there, that the liberalization of markets had accomplished that, it would be a little easier for us to get this message out. But doggone it, 95% of people get that wrong. This should be headlines. We should be cheering for this. And they're not even aware that it's going on. Now, what, what you'll sometimes hear is, if they do acknowledge that this has happened, they'll say, well, that's because governments set up welfare states. That's why. That's how poverty was conquered, through the welfare state. Oh, when somebody says that to me, I feel like, oh, you just walked into the nice little trap. Oh, it's so great. I, I put some shrubbery there so you wouldn't even see it. And you sucker just stepped right in there, okay? Because Johan Norberg has a great little video on this. It's, it's a beauty. It's in the show notes for episode 1395. So if you want to watch this video, it's at tomwoods.com slash 1395. And in that video... What he points out is, when we look at the really wealthy countries of the world, yes, it's true, poverty continues to come down after the welfare state stagnates a bit, but it continues to come down to some degree. But the point is, it had already been coming down, to the point where by the time you get any welfare state worth speaking of, extreme poverty has already been alleviated. Whereas the countries where it's being alleviated now are so poor, they don't, this is what makes them poor countries, they don't have the money for a welfare state. That's an indication that they're poor. They're being lifted out of poverty through markets. So that's the point we, we need to remember. Well, again, this is an amazing thing, but almost nobody knows about it. So, yeah, we can, we can talk about these great moral ideas, but if people think they lead to bad outcomes, they lead to poverty or you don't get enough health care or whatever, or they think that the system we have is free market health care, then, yeah, we are, we are up against a brick wall. There's, there's no question about that. Um, I even... In a recent uh, episode of the old Tom Wood show, I talked about a, what might seem like an obscure topic, but I, I took it on because it's, it's such a difficult one. And I know I have to wrap up in a few minutes, so I will do that. But it's a difficult one because it's hard for people to imagine how we could be right. I mean, it's, uh, people can sort of imagine why we're right, that the private sector should produce shoes rather than the government. Okay, most people can kind of get that. And they can kind of get if we say... Making the minimum wage $10 million an hour is a bad idea. Most people can sort of get that. But if I were to say to you, we shouldn't have deposit insurance for the banks, even some libertarians will say, I'm not so sure I'll be willing to go with you on that, uh, Mr. Woods. But what I want to show is we can even take these hard ones. I mean, we, we got, we're so right on this stuff. You know, I mean, we got, we got to not have self-doubt here. That, well, maybe there is a case where we got to crack some skulls in order for society to work. No, no, we, we really, really do have this, <clears throat> we do have this um, worked out. 
And here's, here's the answer to that question. The answer is, if you actually read the scholarly literature on this, which nobody does, that's the thing, nobody does, it is unanimously agreed that the reason the world has had banking crises over the past half century is due to the fact that we've been protecting the banks because the banks become more reckless with the money because they know they'll be bailed out. And you say, okay, yeah, maybe, maybe, but I still, you know, I'm afraid if I put my money in the bank and the bank goes under, I don't want to lose all my money. So I had Charles Calamiris on the show. He's a professor at Columbia Business School. This is a guy who's actually bothered to study the question. And what he says is this, that yeah, it's true that deposit insurance will give you your money, but it got that money from your left pocket when you were a taxpayer. Because the bank failures and crises of the past 50 years have, on average, accounted for 16% of GDP um, in these various countries. That's a lot of money, and that's coming out of your tax bill. So, yeah, it comes back to you send them a check, and then you get a check from the deposit insurance people. <laughs> and then you say, wow, what a great program. That's all that's happening. You're redistributing the money to yourself in these cases. So before we had the central banks that we had, if we take the 40-year period from 1874 to 1913 and we count up all the banking crises, whether solvency or liquidity crises, there were about a dozen of them, and they added up to about 2, two to 3% of GDP in terms of, of depositor losses. Nothing in the United States came anywhere near that. The, the Panic of 1893 resulted in 0.1% of GDP of depositor losses. But over the past 40 years, when supposedly the central banks of the world that know what they're doing and they're, they're managing the uh, economy for us and the banks are all being responsible, we've had over a hundred of these crises, which have been far more severe. So we've had about 10 times as many crises. So they happen 10 times as often, and they're about five times as severe. Wow. And yet I, and yet the impression you get is, the, the area where the libertarians are the crankiest is on money. Don't they know we have PhDs in charge of the money now? And everything is so much smoother? Yeah, I get that people want to think that. That's why I actually wrote a, an ebook that I give away for free. Did you know I give away free ebooks? Has that come up before? I actually wrote an ebook called Our Enemy the Fed to help people understand this. And also, because you are going to be hit with, oh, but the 19th century was so unstable. Surely we need the Fed. Or hasn't the Fed given us fewer recessions that cause less damage? And all of that is answered in there. So if that interests you, it's at OurEnemyTheFed.com. I will be giving a seminar on how to get awesome domain names later in the convention. No, I won't. But I should do that. I actually bought Our Why was OurEnemyTheFed.com? Why was that available? I don't care. I don't care. I grabbed it. All right. So here's the situation. We have a message that produces prosperity, human flourishing, human brotherhood, and is in line with the basic moral principles we've been taught since birth. But we are up against an educational establishment that tries to chip away at these moral intuitions and substitute other ones. We're up against a lot of folks in the media, who are hostile to us, in the major outlets, who frankly confuse matters and who won't give you that full story about case after case. And, and after a while, this can become demoralizing. It's demoralizing day in and day out to feel like you're just constantly fighting everybody. It's demoralizing. But at the same time, I realize it's a cliche 
to talk about the abolitionist movement almost these days, but you got to because there's a case. Talk about demoralizing fighting against an institution that had existed since the beginning of time and to which nobody made a moral critique until the 18th century. Good grief. And then you try to start a political party, the Liberty Party, and the most you ever get is 2% of the vote. Does that sound familiar? And then just like that, the world changes. Just like that, the world changes. Now, I don't know that the analogy is perfect, but I do know that we have an uphill struggle against entrenched powers everywhere. But yet so did they. And somehow, by what? Making a moral appeal, they were able to crack through all those encrustations that had covered up these basic moral intuitions, get right to the heart of the matter, and win. Perhaps there's a lesson for us here, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much. All right, folks, that's it. Now, all of you, there are uh, some of you who got your uh, web hosting through my link and you're waiting for your publicity. I will be getting that done in the coming week. So do not despair. That is coming. Uh, for those of you who would who like that deal, that if you get your blog or web hosting through tomwoods.com slash blue, you get a good deal on it and you also get free publicity and some other great goodies from me. So get the details on that at tomwoods.com slash publicity. And I'll see you tomorrow for Rachel Fulton Brown. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at Podsworth.com.